Hey there, thanks for joining us. This podcast is put out into the world by Living Water Community Church, located in Ypsilanti, Michigan. I'm Pastor Clark Cothern. If you'd like to know more about Living Water, or if you'd like to drop us a note, or if you've got a question, or if you'd like to have us pray for you, head on over to lw-cc.org. Now, let's join today's podcast in progress. So we're coming back to 1 Peter now, and I'm going to do sort of the introductory session today of a series called The Shepherd Fisherman. The Shepherd Fisherman, digging into what drives us. I think it's a lot easier if somebody were to ask me the question, have you ever been betrayed, to say, oh yes, I can think of times when I've been betrayed, and I could talk about that. Because we all know what it feels like to be on the receiving end of betrayal. It's a little more difficult for us to think of times when we may have been the betrayer. Because it's easier for us to paint that other person as being all in the wrong and we are all in the right. And so I want to tackle a little bit of this term betrayal today, looking through the eyes of Simon Peter, because this establishes why we can trust him and all that stuff you learned from 2 Peter. You can trust him because he had this amazing transformative experience that started him on a trajectory to becoming a wise elder in his own right and an apostle guided by the Holy Spirit so that all that stuff he put down for us in the New Testament is really rich and good for our benefit. So betrayal, what is the key component of betrayal? A simple definition that I looked up this week said that basically betrayal is anything that causes a relational hurt in somebody else. And I kind of disagreed with that a little bit. I think that's a little too vague. It's a little bit too broad. Because when I think of a relational hurt, there are a number of ways that we can hurt one another. And they can be a slight offense. It can be a more of a major offense. But when I think of betrayal, the one word that keeps coming up as I dig into the real root of this particular phrase is disloyalty. There's something about disloyalty that reflects in true betrayal. And you think about that. You think about Simon Peter. I mean, he's the guy who's like the poster child for betrayal when we think about his denying Christ three times the night that Christ was arrested. And so we think of Simon Peter as being the ultimate betrayer, but what we want to do is start examining this whole term, not only from Simon Peter's perspective, but thinking in our own minds, have I been a betrayer at some point? What causes somebody to feel that I may have betrayed them? Now, there's one problem with this whole term about betrayal, and we see it happening in the news all the time. We see it in social media in America today. We're not real good about being truly tolerant of other people's opinions, are we? All you have to do is just follow a thread in Facebook from any kind of a group that puts something out there that's controversial, and boom, it's like throwing gas on a fire. Why is that? It's because... We have started saying that anytime somebody disagrees with me about some minor point, I've been betrayed and they've just hurt me deeply. We have no ability to differentiate between what is a major betrayal and what is just a minor offense and something that's probably not going to matter a hundred years from now. And so one of the things I have to start examining myself about in my own heart is to say, is this something important enough for me to really respond to? 
Am I want, do I really want to dive into a big discussion about this, or is this just a minor offense that I need to let roll off? And trying to differentiate that sometimes shows where there's some godly wisdom happening. How do we react? There are several different ways that people react when they've been hurt. Sometimes we can just start viewing any difference of opinion as betrayal, and that means that anytime somebody disagrees with us, we have a flashpoint that's just very quick, and we, we just blow up, which means that there's not a whole lot of really good conversation going on. It's a lot of people joining other camps of people that are similar to themselves in this one area, and then we're taking pot shots at one another. Rather than saying, wait a minute, I want to understand fully where you're coming from, and then let's see if we're finding any kind of common ground here. Let's build a bridge towards some commonality so I can understand you, you can understand me. Our actions and our reactions to other people reveal what really drives us. There's something at the very beginning that I said, we're going to dive into what drives us because we see that in Simon Peter. It made a difference what drove him as to whether he was that fisherman who was hot-headed and quick to make bold claims. You know, all these other guys, they might leave you, Lord, but I'll never betray you. I'll never leave you. No matter how bad things get, I, for one, will always be with you. Well, what was driving that? Clearly, we can see because he actually did deny Christ later that it wasn't true loyalty. So what was, it, what was that about? Sometimes we want people to like us. Maybe he was a people pleaser. Maybe Simon Peter thought, man, I really like this guy because he's a great leader. He's a smart teacher, and I want him to like me. And so maybe Simon Peter was saying all these things because he wanted to be the teacher's pet in a way. Maybe he was ambitious. I think we see a little bit of that. Maybe he wanted to join the ranks of the winning team. And we don't want to switch in mid-game and start joining the other team because they happen to be winning. But maybe he was seeing that Jesus had the potential of actually leading a group of people so that they could make a difference in their part of the world. Maybe he would be the one, the, the real Messiah, the leader that could overthrow the Roman government and usher in a new era. And he wanted to be on his cabinet. Maybe that was his motivation, what was driving him. Maybe he was just ambitious personally and wanted to sidle up to somebody who had power. We see that a lot. People will try to become best friends with the person who has the most power in an organization because they want to be able to say, hey, yeah, he's, my, he's with me. And so they kind of, by close proximity, they feel like they have some of that power too. Maybe that was what was driving some of Simon Peter. We're not exactly sure, but what we do see is Simon Peter had to make a huge shift after the big betrayal. John 21 is where we're looking today. I'm going to be talking through it. I'm not going to read every verse, but I would love for you to have your Bibles open to that chapter because that way you can kind of follow along where I'm talking about when we get through this uh, together. What drives Simon Peter? There was a buildup to betrayal. You know, betrayal wouldn't be a big betrayal if it was some minor little fence from somebody that didn't know somebody very well. You know what I'm saying? I mean, somebody could say something like in Scotland when they mispronounced Michigan. Every time they'd say, where are you from? We'd say Michigan. They'd go, oh, Michigan. To a person, they all said that because apparently CH is pronounced ch to them. And so we, we didn't try to correct them. Uh, we barely knew them. We we're not going to say, you're saying that wrong again. You know, I, repeat after me, Michigan. We didn't do that because it's no big deal. We didn't let it roll off. The reason a betrayal is a real betrayal is because there's a connection that goes deep with somebody. 
And that happened with Simon Peter. He was following Jesus for a long time, getting to know him. And Jesus had been pouring into Simon's life. He'd been teaching him. And so you, you have a deeper connection there. That's why you can only really be betrayed by people you really care about. So what's driving his loyalty? We're not quite sure. Here's a comparison that I'd like to make. Now, I shared this a couple of years ago, three, four, five, seven, ten, twelve years ago. I can't remember which. But uh, it fits for me because this incident in my life became John 21 fleshed out. And I've always connected the two. Every time I read through John chapter 21, I think about this incident. What drove me in college was musical excellence. I really went above and beyond what the teachers would ask of me because I wanted to be excellent as a musician. So I became a, a composer, and I would enter composition contests, and I would stay after school and practice my trombone, and I played with lots of different small groups, and we would meet together and have extra rehearsals that weren't required. And so all these things that I was doing, trying to reach excellence in music, that was what was driving me. But it's not just excellence in music, it was some pride in there because I wanted to be the best at what I did. I was ambitious, there was some pride involved in that, and I didn't really quite recognize that until I got an opportunity to start doing some part-time arranging and producing work in a small studio, a recording studio in Phoenix. And the lady there who ran that is called Sarge Walden, and she was Sarge for a reason. We did what Sarge told us to do. Uh, she knew how to run that ship. But after doing that for a few months, she would invite some of us in to help craft a song for one of her clients. They would be paying money for the recording time, and she was bringing in people to help them craft their song. And sometimes these people that she would bring in didn't seem to have a lot of musical excellence. You know, some guy would say, right here, I want some horn parts, kind of like Chicago, and it goes, See what I mean? And it was our job to translate that into the notes on the page that somebody could play so that it would sound like da 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 And I get a little frustrated by that sometimes because I would think, Sarge, I, I feel like sometimes you're bringing in people that are less than excellent, and sometimes you would bring in people to play on those parts, and there'd be a bass player, and we'd say, okay, here's your part. And he'd go, oh, well, I don't read music. And you'd kind of have to say, okay, well, we have to change our strategy a little bit now because we have to teach this guy his part by rote. And it was things like that that over time started to become frustrating. And one time, I did what people do when we get frustrated. Instead of going to Sarge and talking about my frustration, I started talking to somebody else about it. And I mentioned, you know, I got to visit another studio across town in Scottsdale. Man, it was a tight ship. It was all music all the time. Time was money, and when you stepped into that studio, you were making music, and you were doing it because it was professionally run. And I, I just get frustrated because over there at this studio where Sarge is in charge, it's just so loosey-goosey, and sometimes I'd come in, and she'd be chatting with somebody in her office for 15, 20 minutes when I thought they should be out there woodshedding their part, trying to get it down so it could be excellent. Well, you know what happens when you gossip to somebody? They share what you shared with somebody else, and that person shares with somebody else until the next day I was scheduled to come in and help arrange some brass parts for one of her clients. Sarge said, there was nobody else in the studio. And I thought, I thought we were supposed to. She goes, let's take a little ride in my car for a few minutes today. And she looked at me with that look. That look that says, 
busted. And I started to feel hot. You know how your face goes hot and your ears turn red? And I thought, she's got me as a captive audience because if I'm riding in the passenger seat of her car, there's nowhere to go. I can't run away from this talk. So she drove around. We didn't go anywhere in particular. She just drove around Phoenix for a while, a few streets over. And you know what she did for me that day? I'm not going to tell you yet. (laughs) When we get back to Simon Peter, I think about him and I think about what the scriptures tell us about what happened with him because he had denied Christ. Luke's gospel tells us that after that rooster crowed three times, Jesus turned and looked at Simon Peter. Remember that Jesus had predicted that that would happen. You'll say, before the rooster crows three times tonight, you will have denied me three times Simon. And then when that happened, it was almost like Jesus knew what was going on because he could hear that rooster just as well as Simon. And I can't imagine, I can't imagine what would have happened, how red his face must have been and how hot his ears must have been when Jesus turned and looked at him after that denial. It was like, busted. What was he feeling? And then the next 12 hours, as Jesus went through those mock trials and he was cruelly tortured, crucified on a cross, his body taken down in haste in time for the preparation day for the Sabbath, buried in a borrowed tomb, all those things taking place while Simon Peter knew he had betrayed his good friend and his master. And then the rumors, Sunday morning, there's some crazy ladies, they're coming back from the grave and they're saying that the tomb is empty. What? What's going on? We can't take their word for it. They're women after all. Sorry, ladies. That's kind of the way it was back then, unfortunately. And so some decided they were going to go and check it out for themselves. And so we get the younger one who could get there quicker. But Peter was the one who was brash and pushed him aside, just ran right in to see for himself. There were all these things that started coming true, and he's thinking, he is gone. And then in the midst of all those crazy roller coaster emotions, Jesus starts appearing to different people. He appears to those two guys on the road to Emmaus. They're downtrodden. The guy, third guy comes up and starts talking with them. They don't recognize who it is at first, even though they're talking about him to him, until finally they invite him in to stay. He breaks the bread. <gasps> Their eyes are open. They realize, oh, 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 that was him. That was him the whole time. We were walking with him. So they run all the way back to Jerusalem. They share with these other people that are waiting in the upper room. And that's when Jesus appears to them again. So we know that there were at least three of these appearances. And so Peter's starting to see, oh, okay, he's, he's resurrected again. But if I were Peter, I'd be looking at Christ every time he looked at me, and I would feel the weight of guilt knowing that we've not gotten back together again. The last time I saw him, I denied him, and he looked at me, and I was busted. That's what Peter's been living with. So meanwhile, back in Galilee, have you ever gone back to what you knew We've had to do that a couple of different times. I took a job thinking I was the man for the role, and I was the CEO of Neighborhood Bible Studies in New York. And I I have to admit now, I was way in over my head. There's probably way too much pride and ambition going into accepting that job than there should have been. And once I was in it, I realized, wow, so many people who are so much more qualified than I could be for this job. And it was a tough stint for us. And then God called us back, and it was a strange calling because I felt like he was saying to us clearly, go back to the last thing you're doing. Go back into the local church ministry, and you need to go to Michigan. It's okay, good. That's, that's a start, Lord, but where in Michigan? It's on a need-to-know basis. 
I'll tell you when you get there. You just go back to Michigan. And so Joy and I prayed about it, and God led us back to Michigan. And then we wound up preaching in what they call in view of a call in several different churches. And each time, Joy and I just knew that the Holy Spirit was saying, nope, this is not the one. And we would be kind of in conflict because you think, well, you called us back to Michigan, and I'm preaching in view of a call, and this is a good church. They're offering us, offering us a good job, and yet you're saying, nope, but this is not the one. He did that three different times. And then finally, he called us to the one that we stayed in for 10 years in Adrian, and we knew that was the right fit. It was exactly what we had to do. But we went back to what we knew we had to keep doing, and that's what these boys did. They said, well, let's go back to fishing. Let's go back to doing what we know we can do. And that's what they did. So they went back over there into Capernaum. And this is actually taken from a boat on the Sea of Galilee because you guys sent Joy and me to Israel. And we were on the boat on Galilee looking at a place that they said it could have been right around in this area where this John 21 incident took place. And somebody stood up and read John 21 as we were watching this scene listening to these things transpire, imagining what it was like for the real Simon Peter to hear from the one that Jesus loved, John, say, that's the Lord. He's the one who told us, throw your net on the other side of the fish. When he said, are you catching anything? They said, no, we've been at it all night. We haven't caught anything. He goes, throw the net on the right side of the boat this time. And they did, and they caught this huge catch, so much so that they couldn't haul the net into the boat. They had to drag it behind the boat into the shore. And then... Because John was the first one to recognize that only Jesus could have done a miracle like that. He said, it's the Lord. And Peter wraps his cloak around him, jumps into the water impetuously, of course, leaving who to drag the boat in? The other boys, the other five of them. And so Peter gets there first because that's Peter's nature. And he gets there onto the shore, and what does he see? Here's Jesus sitting around a charcoal fire. Ah, interesting that John would point that out. When was the last time Peter saw a charcoal fire? In the courtyard of Caiaphas, the night that some people said, oh, you're with him, aren't you? No, I, I've never known the man. Somebody else heard his speech pattern, heard his dialect, and said, you're from Minnesota, aren't you, don't you know? He goes, I mean, no, you're from, you're from that other place over there. You, you're a Jesus follower, aren't you? And he goes, no. And then the third time, no, I've seen him. I know that he's that guy. And he goes, I... Never knew the man. It was a charcoal fire. So isn't it, I don't think it's coincidental, isn't it neat how Jesus finds ways to trigger all these wonderful things for his teachable moments? And he does so even with something as simple as a charcoal fire. And he says to the guys, because they're trying to row the boat in, and they're dragging this net behind him, he says, Hey, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Being good fishermen, they counted them, 153. Thank you very much. And so Peter ran out and started dragging the 153 fish in that net up onto the shore so they could cook some of them, which shows us that the resurrected Jesus was interacting with them. He got his feet under the table with them, so to speak. He was relating to them by eating a meal with them. And it also shows them that we get to eat after we've been resurrected. I'm looking forward to that as well. And so they start to get around that fire and Jesus does something. Does he go into the I told you so sermon? No. God is always in the habit of sneaking up on us with great blessings at times of great trial. He is so good at doing that. And he did that for them. 
Think about what they had been feeling when they were out trying to fish, caught nothing. Mike, you know what it's like to try to fish, and you're catching nothing. (laughs) Is that because you catch all the time? And yet, here are these guys, and they're so frustrated, they're in grief because their master had been gone, and then they're saying his body's gone, and yet they're going back to Galilee. Who knows what's going to happen next? Their minds are probably such a blur not knowing what they're going to do next, and yet God sneaks up on them with this blessing. You also think about another time when there was bread and fish. They're up on the shore. Oh, yeah, we know of two times. One was the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000, and he allowed them to pass out the food to everybody. He's so good at triggering these memories for a teachable moment, and he does so right here on this shore. He snuck up on them and gave them a blessing. That happened to Joy and me, the sneaking up on part. Because there was a time when uh, we were kind of like the Gubinis and our kids were stair-stepped down really young. And we were in one of those tight spots where we didn't have a whole lot of money one week. And I knew that we were really close. It was probably going to be peanut butter and graham crackers for the rest of the week. You know what that's like. And yet, I had to try to pay money for a retreat, a lads and dads retreat up near Roscommon with my son, Clarkie. And I didn't have enough money to pay for the retreat. Joy was going to have to try to pay for a babysitter because we just found out that a member of our church passed away and I needed to do a funeral and we had to hire a babysitter so that we could both be at that funeral. And it wouldn't have been right for her to stay home because this was a sweet older lady that Joy just really supported. And so we said, boy, we're going out on faith on this one. And so we knew we had to hire the babysitter and trust that somehow we were going to try to pull something together. And it was kind of, I don't mean to say this disparagingly toward that family. They were a family that was sort of marginalized and they Some of the folks had been disabled and hadn't been able to work for some time, and so they didn't have a lot of money. And I'm not saying that to be mean or calloused, but I just knew realistically I wasn't expecting any honorarium. I wasn't expecting any payment for that funeral, and I I didn't want any. Here's the point is that I didn't expect any because I didn't want any. I thought it would have been just awful for me to even expect that from a family that was in such need. But I thought, okay, God, this is where you called us. It's the last thing you called us to do. We're going to do it. We're going to just go and minister to this family. So we went to the funeral visitation. We visited with all the family members. We prayed with them. I showed up, did the eulogy. We had the funeral. And on the way out the door, I hadn't really spoken to anybody else other than the key family members. On the way out the door, one of the children of the fellow who'd passed away reached into his back pocket and pulled out this crumpled up envelope and said, here, pastor, we just want you to know we really appreciate your being there for us. And I didn't expect anything, and I tried to turn it back. And he goes, no, no, you can't give that back. You really helped us out. I said, well, thank you. So I drove home, and I opened that envelope, and I about fell out. Because apparently every one of those children in that family had sort of just said, well, what have I got? And they kind of passed the hat. And they each contributed, some 20s, some 10s, some 5s. There was $140 in that envelope, enough to pay the babysitter, enough to buy a few groceries to get us to the end of the week, enough to pay for the lads and dads retreat for that weekend, just because I was doing the last thing God told me to do and God showed up with a blessing. Sometimes, if we don't know what else to do, go back to the last thing God had you doing and look to see where he's going to show up. That's not a bad approach. Do the last thing God told you to do. John recognized who had performed that miracle. Peter got out there, saw the bread, the fish, the coals. It all started to click. And yet, you know what happens when you hear something that's that trigger for you? 
Maybe it's a song on the radio. I know after my dad passed away, I could hear one song on the radio. It caused me to tear up every time. There's triggers. And when they got here and saw these triggers, I imagine that for Peter, it was a grief-stricken time because he's not only reunited with the Lord, but he knows that he's really hurt him. So did Jesus launch into the I told you so sermon? No. Neither did Sarge Walden. Meanwhile, back to Sarge Walden in Phoenix. She was driving me around in some of these streets in Phoenix, and she didn't say, uh, word has gotten back to me. She said, uh, Clark, I'm sure that you are aware what it's like to have an organization that has a reputation. And it's nice when the people who are working for that organization help foster that reputation. And I'm thinking, yes, that is a good thing. And I knew that I had not fostered a good reputation. She said, you know, I know your heart and I know your desire. She said, I just want you to know that sometimes what drives us and the purposes that we have are different from some other people's drives and purposes. And I want you to keep your eyes open in the next few weeks because I think you'll start to pick up on some of the, what drives me and what some of my purposes are. She said, but I know your heart and I figured that from now forward, you're going to be really supportive of Sound Tech Studios. And I said, I am. I really am. Because I was really grateful for the opportunity to do the work that she was allowing me to be a part of. And then I started watching. And you know what Sarge did in those chats, the chit-chat times when she had people in her office? She was discipling young men and women who were hungry for the things of God. This wasn't a business for her. This was an extension of her spiritual gifts. And she was getting people on board who had an interest in music. And she was nurturing them and maturing them in ways that other people would never have touched because they weren't excellent yet. But she knew that they needed something permanent and eternal. That's what was driving Sarge, not musical excellence. And we had a tearful parting when I went off to seminary and Sarge grabbed my cheeks like I was her grandson. She said, Mr. Cawthorn, I want you to know that God's given you music for a reason. And he's always going to use that music and whatever you do, you just keep doing it for the Lord. And then she kissed me on the cheek and sent me out the door. That was Sarge. And she was right. And I'm so grateful that she knew how to turn what could have been an awful moment into a teachable moment. And it was a transformative moment for me. That's what Jesus did for Peter. That was the transformation. He says, Peter, do you love me more than these? And don't we wish that they had a diagram to show where Jesus was gesturing at that point? More than what? More than the coals on the fire? More than the Sea of Galilee and the fishing business that I have to leave? More than these guys that are having to drag in the net that you left behind? I mean, what is it? I think in context that if I were a betting man, that he was meaning more than these other apostles because he had bragged earlier, if all the rest of these guys leave you, I never will. And he's saying, taking him right back to that denial point, do you love me more than these? And Peter says, oh, you know I do, Lord. He doesn't try to justify it. He doesn't try to go back and explain why he did what he did. He says, oh, you know I do. It's a humbler Peter at this point. And he goes, well, then feed my lambs. And then he says, do you love me more than these? He asks him a second time. Peter says, Lord, 
you know that I love you. He goes, tend my sheep. And then he asked him a third time, do you love me more than these? And it says that Peter actually was hurt at this point because he'd asked him three different times. And he says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. He says, feed my sheep. You know what he was doing? I think you, you've seen these television shows where somebody grabs the wrong VHS. Kids, ask your parents what a VHS is. When we used to, we used to be able to put in that tape and record over an old tape with new stuff. And I think there was an Everybody Loves Raymond episode when he actually recorded a football game over his wedding. Not a good idea. But in this case, I think Jesus, in a sense, was recording over those three denials with three affirmations to say, Peter, you've got a new role now. You're not just a fisherman, you're a shepherd. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. And Peter walked away a different guy from there, which is why all the stuff that the elders taught you can be trustworthy. Because that's what he was transformed into. He's a shepherd. And we're going to learn from that shepherd now in the rest of this series going through 1 Peter. So how do you process a hurt in a relationship? Do you do what I did and gossip to somebody? I've learned the hard way, fortunately, several times because God knows that I just need a little extra help sometimes. That gossip is never the right way because it doesn't end well. It's not productive. And so do we gossip? When we're hurt, are we the time bomb who just kind of takes it and takes it and we wait until our fuse gets lit and it goes for a long time until we just explode? And when we do explode, there's no turning back because then we're so embarrassed and we've hurt so many people that we just have to leave. Or do we caringly confront that hurt by saying, I know you well enough to know that you didn't mean to harm me, but I was harmed because of this. Marriages need to do that often, I'm here to say. You want a good long marriage? We were asked by several people in Scotland when they found out that we'd been married for 40, 41 years. They say, what's the secret to a good marriage? And I said several times, share your coffee. <laughs> and a couple of times they'd say, oh man, you're asking a lot. I don't share my coffee with anybody. And I said, well, if you want a good long marriage. And then Joy would also give some wisdom that was probably less humorous than that. And she would say things like, forgive each other, listen to each other well, find out what the hurt is, and then apologize when you're wrong. You know, things like that. But you do that all the time in a relationship. And if you do it where those things are small, they don't have to grow into something that causes an explosion that you're embarrassed and you have to walk away from. Caring confrontation. Jesus did that for Peter. And he showed Peter so that Peter could teach others how to do that later on. That's why we can read such wisdom like you heard from 2 Peter. Remember, he would say, remember these things that you've been taught. Why did Peter know them so well? Because he lived it. He was the recipient of that kind of caring confrontation. Loved him enough to say, Peter, I'm not going to keep holding this over your head. I'm not going to beat you up for it. Here's what I see in you. Now, do this. Overcoming what drives us. I've tried that. It doesn't work too well. You know what we have to do? Replace what drives us. By letting Christ, through His Holy Spirit, remake us. And what drives me now is eternal as opposed to the temporary. It's not just musical excellence, but it's doing my best for God so that the people who are inspired by that music can get touched by Christ and get to know Him forever. There's a difference. Matthew 18 gives us that 
wonderful prescription for when there's conflict. First, go one-on-one. We don't do that often enough. Go one-on-one. Just work it out. Most of the time, things aren't as big as we think they're going to be. If we'll just get in the same room with somebody, affirm your love for them, and say, I was kind of hurt when this happened. Can we work this out? Because I love you. Man, if you go in that spirit, chances are good that you're going to work it out. And then it says, but if it can't be taken care of with one-on-one, then get two or three others to be witnesses and try to work it out there. And then if that fails, take it to the church. And by that, I think they mean the church elders or leaders rather than somebody airing their dirty laundry in a public setting like this. And you know what I've noticed in that third prescription? That doesn't apply to people who just got their nose bent because somebody said something mildly negative behind my back. That's not what that third one is for. We need to take care of the little stuff while they're little. And the stuff there for the church, we're talking about serial sinners who fail to take responsibility for heinous sins that are really hurting the body. That's what that third one is for. And yet, because we tend to get so thin-skinned and let every little hurt build up into something bigger than it should be, we're skipping steps one and two and going right to step three. Don't do that. If I could take you into my car and drive you around Phoenix for a while, I would say, I love you, and I know that you want to work things out, and you have a responsibility to maintain unity and a good reputation for this organization, because this is not just an organization, this is the body of Christ. You have a responsibility to maintain unity. You have a responsibility for maintaining unity. Can we do that? Of course we can. Why? Because we have the Holy Spirit. We've got all that loving power of God inside us through the Holy Spirit, which can allow us to go and work these little details out while they're small and reaffirm our love for each other. And when that happens, amazing things happen because people are drawn to a community of believers who care that way. I want to do that. I want to feed God's sheep. And I believe you do too. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for not beating Peter up for his betrayal. Thank you that you transformed Peter into that wonderful shepherd fisherman because we're benefiting from his teaching and we'll continue to benefit through this series. Lord, I know that I've messed up so many times personally by either gossiping or being a time bomb. And I just pray that you'll continue to work that work of transformation in my own life so that I can become just as Peter became, become a shepherd who cares and who can caringly confront little issues while they're still small so that we can become that kind of body that Peter's teaching us to be through his letters. And I pray that all of us would continue to care so deeply for one another that as soon as your Holy Spirit whispers to us, you know what you just did? You don't like it when somebody does that to you, so you've just done that to somebody else. You need to make that right. That we'll dive into action and we'll be humble enough to recognize that we're responsible for caring for other people. Oh, I pray that this will become part of our DNA as a loving, caring, forgiving, shepherding kind of community of faith. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.